0: Mm-mm. <clears throat>
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome into Rethink Reshoring. I'm Kaylee Nix. This is a brand new show here at Freight Waves. We're taking a look at the world of reshoring, the changing policies of global trade, what this looks like for us here back home on American soil. Super excited to bring this to you. Of course, we are here with the executive director of the Reshoring Institute. Rosemary Coates is joining us absolute top-notch, best firsthand perspective to talk about reshoring. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us and for the idea to really create this show and get into a topic that I think people maybe
2: recognize when they hear the word reshoring, but maybe they don't know a whole lot about. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I think this is going to be a lot of fun over the next uh, few weeks with the series on reshoring and all the various aspects of it. So getting
1: right into things, reshoring is a concept that's not necessarily new when it comes to how we talk about supply chain, but it has really picked up in popularity specifically through the last kind of three years. Give us a broad overview about what reshoring is and specifically how it sits with the United States at the center when uh, our conversation around reshoring.
2: Yeah, well, you know, reshoring, uh, the term has been around for a while, at least 10 years, I think uh, the start of the reshoring movement was in uh, about 2012 during the presidential election when Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were both China bashing like crazy and uh, starting to talk about the potential to bring some manufacturing back. And actually, um, a lot of my clients started, um, started asking uh, about whether or not it was economically feasible to bring manufacturing back. Uh, and I think you know we started kind of slowly uh, evaluating that, and and started gaining some more sophistication in making decisions regarding where in the world to manufacture. Uh, and it was building over time, and then the pandemic hit, and when that happened, uh, risk was introduced into supply chain like we'd never seen before. So uh, having to deal with another variable, the size of the kind of risk that we were experiencing where Chinese factories were opening and closing and opening and closing, um, you know, introduced an, a whole new aspect to that decision-making policy. And I think um, a, an awful lot of companies, certainly our clients, are now considering their global manufacturing strategy. So we call it reshoring. But in a lot of cases, it's uh, their overall global manufacturing strategy. And uh, that means where in the world should they manufacture or have multiple plants? Do they have a China plus one strategy, a China plus two countries? Uh, Are they bringing everything back to the U.S.? Are they expanding factories here? Are they sourcing here? There's a lot of moving parts and components to that decision.
1: So just like everything in supply chain reshoring, is something that is very much complicated, right? As you mentioned, lots of moving parts. And it very much differs on your perspective on if you are looking at someone who uses globalization as part of their supply chain, if someone who is more regionally focused, or if someone who tends to stay closer to home and tends to like things a little bit more local. Since we are speaking from the perspective of America Give us just kind of a broad overview on what the general landscape of reshoring tendencies looks like in America right now. Obviously, COVID was that kind of catalyst that caused a lot of folks to really rethink their supply chain and then thus rethink their reshoring initiatives, hence the name of our show.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, y- you know, for, for many years and um, I was right in the thick of things. So for many years, we were offshoring to China um, and it was it was essentially what my clients wanted to do. I'd I'd go talk to clients, and I'm a management consultant, and I'd talk to my clients and they would say, get me to China, Uh, I know I need to be there, my competitors are there, it's cheaper, you know, and on and on and on. And that was, um, you know, started in the late 90s, but then really took off after 2001 when China uh, ascended to the World Trade Organization, and the door sort of flew open and it became a great market for manufacturing as well as selling into that market. So companies had a strategy of just moving there just because it was cheaper. Fast forward to today, um, China is no longer a low-cost country. Uh, in fact, at the Reshoring Institute, we uh, produced a report just before, just before Christmas, and we compared labor rates um, in 12 countries in, in about 10 job categories. And um, if you have a look at the study results, you'll see that China is right smack in the middle of those 12 countries. At the low end now is Vietnam, India, and Central Mexico, and not at the border so much, but Central Mexico. And so uh, if you have a supply chain that includes manufacturing with a lot of labor content then you would be looking for a low-cost labor country like India or Bangladesh or Costa Rica or Central Mexico. But if you have the ability to automate your production, uh, then that's a completely different kind of uh, decision-making process. And you have, if you can automate and extract that labor, you have an opportunity for a lot different, a lot of different places to manufacture your product, and hopefully that includes the U.S. The results in the environment and um, the business environment in the U.S. because of this kind of uh, thought process and strategic decision making is pretty profound. So what we're seeing now is um, a lot of our clients who have decided to source more raw materials in the U.S., which is sort of the first step in reshoring. So you would try to redevelop some of your supply base here and then eventually bring manufacturing back here. Um, So from ThomasNet, they are um, a a sort of directory of suppliers across the U.S. I don't know any of the audience are old enough to remember the old Thomas registers. They were big sort of yellow pages for manufacturers that we used to look up manufacturers. We were looking for nuts and bolts. You looked up nuts and bolts or fasteners and you found people there. Well, now all of that is online. But Thomas still is that go-to company where uh, buyers look for manufacturers. And they did a a study recently. Uh, within the last year or two, and uh, found that most industrial buyers are now actively trying to find more man- more raw material suppliers and parts suppliers in the U.S. And if each of those industrial buyers, they surveyed about, I don't know, a 1,000 or so um, industrial companies, if they were each to, um, to choose uh, 10 or 11 new suppliers in the U.S., and bring some of that um, that that sourcing back to the U.S. It translates into 443 billion dollars into injected into the U.S. economy, which is just astonishing. I mean, it's a huge amount of money uh, that can be pushed into the U.S. economy, and of course, when that happens, it has a magnifier effect. So. When we start manufacturing in the U.S., we have more need for transportation. Um, we need more trucks to move that equipment around. Uh, we need more warehousing. We need more fast fulfillment. Um, we are better off in terms of sustainability because we're shortening those those long global supply chains. Um, so it's very positive all around. Um, the other thing that we know is that when uh, every every dollar that's spent on new manufacturing in the U.S., every dollar that's spent for wages in manufacturing, has about a 1.4 magnifier effect on the local economy. So people who uh, people who um, work in manufacturing earn a wage in manufacturing, uh, which is roughly say $65,000 to $85,000 a year is an average manufacturing salary. And that is squarely middle class for most of America. And those people, when they earn a salary, they spend their money locally. Mm -hmm. So they shop locally, they eat out at restaurants, they have their hair done, uh, they buy cars, they buy houses, they buy big screen TVs, they send their kids to college. And so that magnifier effect is very profound on the economy. It's very important, very positive. Uh, and, and we should, I think, all support that in order to re- to rebuild our uh, economy and to strengthen our economy in the U.S. Many that was a long-winded <laughs>
1: Manufacturing is kind of that, like almost the lifeblood of that stereotypical American dream thought process, right? And we really see saw that came to fruition after the end of World War II and after we historically started to move into this kind of middle class, you do see that median earning potential that's really kind of when this all started to take shape. Of course, the way that global geopolitical events kind of influenced things through the end of the uh, 1900s and into the start of the 2000s, plus where we are now, there's so much ground to cover when it comes to talking about reshoring. So many topics, which is why we have this show, right? To dig into a little bit of each of those. So I'm sure that throughout these upcoming weeks, we'll talk a little bit about history. We'll talk a little bit about events. We'll talk a little bit about kind of that trickle-down theory that you mentioned. But I heard you talk about the reshoring Institute, which is of course where you are from, executive director and the chairwoman of their board. Talk to us a little bit about the Reshoring Institute, what it does as a nonprofit. It's not quite a consulting group, but it is there for industry perspective and industry insight.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Right. Well, so I had spent 25 years helping companies with global manufacturing, offshoring to China, and you know, closing down factories in the U.S. and you know it was got pretty bleak it was pretty awful um and so uh after the 2012 election that i mentioned um you know i thought it was really important to rethink how we were how we were talking to our clients and how we were um giving them advice and leading them and so we developed a methodology for uh evaluating the potential for reshoring and um that ultimately, uh, you know, became the Reshoring Institute, which was housed at the University of San Diego for the first three years. We were, I'm on the board at the University uh, Supply Chain Management Institute. And so um, I asked them if they would house uh, the Reshoring Institute. They were all over it. So we were housed there. We took interns only from USD for the first three years. Uh, And then we went nationwide, and today we have uh, affiliations with 14 universities, and we're about to take on two more, so it's very exciting. We take uh, paid interns, mostly from graduate school, uh, MBA students and master's in engineering, uh, and we teach them about manufacturing, and then they help us with our projects and our uh, case studies and our white papers and so forth. Um, And yes, and it's true, we also provide services. So we do small consulting projects and we're a nonprofit. So uh, they're very inexpensive by comparison to what you would find in the big consulting world. And I know this because that's where I came from. (laughs) Um, So we have uh, inexpensive projects. We do things like um, site selection. So we help companies find a new manufacturing site. We do a lot of trade compliance work. I, I happen to be a licensed customs broker, so I get a lot of the import work. And so we're, we develop that. Uh, we do uh, domestic sourcing work, so we do lots of engagements where we'll help clients find domestic sources. You know, which is kind of interesting because um, during the period when we were offshoring everything, um, especially to China, all the suppliers went there too. So, today, if you're looking for that product that you sourced 20 years ago in the US, there's nobody making it anymore. And so, a lot of cases, you have to develop a new source. So, we do that kind of research, find companies that potentially could make a product and so forth. Um, we do made in the USA labeling projects, which seems simple enough, but it's pretty complicated. Um, you have to qualify uh, to be uh, authorized as a, a made-in-the-USA producer based on labor content as well as overhead as well as parts being sourced in the U.S. Um, so you need to have roughly 95% of your product needs to be made in the U.S. in order to label it made in the USA, And that's controlled by the Federal Trade Commission. So it's, there's some fairly complicated laws regarding that. And so we do a lot of that kind of work as well. Um, yeah, so you know all kinds of consulting work to help companies evaluate and support American manufacturing.
1: Getting back to that American made is it's very much kind of an intrinsic value so much as it is an initiative, right? And of course, we've seen it used as like a political ploy. We've seen it as kind of this call to action. But at the end of the day, it is an intrinsic value. And that's one of those things that I think makes the American economy very unique. But for a lot of companies, if you're just starting out a company, maybe you're just starting out to build a product or things like that, you have to go some places like China or like Bangladesh, India to source things because it's cost prohibitive, and then getting right. back once you've started can then in itself be very expensive, right? So for companies who are looking to maybe start a reshoring initiative or re- start reshoring some some efforts, what are those first things that they really need to think about before they start thinking about bringing back their manufacturing, their production back home?
2: Yeah, so we outlined a whole methodology for evaluating this, but you know, most mostly you start with a total cost of ownership model to understand what your true costs are for overseas. And, um, you know, TCO models are sort of commonplace. They're sort of a dime a dozen. You can download stuff and, you know, from the internet, that's pretty, pretty good as a starting point anyway. So you would start with evaluating your overall costs and then we customize those to fit your business. Um, so for example, an apparel business is different from machine to- a machine shop, right? So um, you have to customize these TCO models uh, to fit your business requirements. So we would start there. Then um, you know, we would take information from field service reps and from marketing to understand where are you going? what what are how are the products being developed? How are they, Uh, what are the the new things that customers are demanding what are the new bells and whistles or that sort of thing so we would um, include that so you've got a total cost of ownership you understand what the product is where you're going with it or if you're going to introduce a brand new product uh, and then surveying your market to make sure that if you introduce it you can sell it uh, and then understanding what all the costs are and that's a that's a pretty big step too where you try um to engineer out as much of the cost as you possibly can, and you do that through automation uh, and through streamlining processes in manufacturing, in order to get the price of your product competitive. Uh, that's that's a big step. Uh, and then you know, looking at distribution and logistics, where do you keep inventory, or do you keep inventory? These are all component parts to that decision. It's complicated for sure. It's not as easy as saying you know I I shipped everything to China and now I'm gonna bring everything home. Um, it's complicated and and also uh, just just an afterthought. Um, leaving China is very difficult and I think we might save that for a future episode all about how to how to leave China or if you should or can. Um, but leaving China is difficult and, and the reestablishing manufacturing in the U.S. is also difficult and should be rethought so that you are actually uh, have an efficient operation here. I'm going to um, jot that down
1: in notes as save for future episode how to leave China if it's a good decision for you or for not. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between reshoring and nearshoring. We talk a lot on our FreightWaves programs, especially FreightWaves now, about nearshoring and how we have seen now explosive manufacturing come to Mexico. You mentioned central Mexico being that source of cheap labor just south of the border for us and the southern border in the United States has become a source of manufacturing specifically for electronics, electric vehicles, things like that. But reshoring and nearshoring aren't exactly the same thing. One gets you closer to home, one gets you actually to home. Is nearshoring a stepping stone for companies that are looking to reshore, or is it just a different beast all in itself?
2: You know, I, I think right now it's a completely different idea. Um, but we help a lot of companies to nearshore as well. I mean, we'd rather get things as close to home as possible, Um, instead of these long, long, long global supply chains that are subject to all kinds of strife and so forth. So, uh, um, nearshoring is uh, an interesting topic because it includes, essentially for us, Mexico and sometimes Central America. Um, Central America, Costa Rica, El Salvador, those places are also very good options if you have a, a lot of labor involved, uh, a sewing shop, for example, or assembly of electronic parts. Um, those countries are, are good places because the labor rate is so cheap. Um, so nearshoring is bringing it closer to home, probably to Mexico. That's where most of our clients want to go. Uh, and Canada is certainly another possibility, although there, it, from what I can see, there isn't much movement to Canada. Um, but yeah, Central Mexico, as you mentioned, is particularly important. Um, along the border, while there's a ton of development going there, um, and a lot of Chinese companies have purchased factories along the border, so there's lots of buzz and activity along the border, which is um, you know, we can talk extensively about that in a in a later episode too. But Central Mexico is very cost competitive, and so we know from our study that uh, Central Mexico is at the very low end uh, of a global labor structure. So, if you have a, a lot of labor into your product, do you want to look for a low cost labor environment? Mexico is another advantage is that it's fairly industrialized, and there are a lot of industrial areas like Guadalajara um, that are or Monterrey that are industrial cities that are making auto parts and electronics and so forth. So there is industrialization as well that you wouldn't find so much if you went to Central America, for example. Um, so you know that's an advantage. And then if you are manufacturing your product in Mexico. And uh, it is it includes labor and overhead and the cost structures and raw materials in Mexico. So it's country of origin Mexico and qualifies for USMCA, <clears throat> which is the new NAFTA, if you will. Um, and that's the trade agreement between Canada, the US and Mexico. It can Your goods can enter into the US duty-free. So we're dealing with a Chinese penalty tariffs of twenty five percent, rising costs in China, and when you compare that to Central Mexico, with Mexican uh, labor and Mexican parts that come into the U.S. duty free, you know it's pretty pretty good. Um, the cost comparison is very favorable for Mexico, and you can just drive across the border. Um, so you don't have to wait for six weeks to have your container unloaded in um, in in uh, the port of Long Beach or Los Angeles. You can just drive across the border. So that's pretty cool, too. Uh, so, yeah, it makes, it makes Mexico and Nearshoring very attractive idea in addition to reshoring, of course, which is our favorite idea, to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., So we've got a couple of minutes left in our first episode of
1: Rethink Reassuring, and I want to get your thoughts on some of those topics that you're most excited to explore. Personally, I really want to get into the distinction and kind of the switch up from globalization to regionalization to this kind of like nearshoring, much shorter, less complicated supply chains. But what are some of those things that you're really excited to talk about?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, most companies that I'm I'm working with, the executives have some ideas on their agenda, their top agenda. And, um, and reshoring is one. I think that's a pretty hot topic, if you will. But also sustainability, so environmental concerns. So if you actually bring manufacturing back to the U.S., it it hits both of those topics. Um, by manufacturing close to your market, if, if you have a, a big market in the U.S., and then manufacturing close to your market uh, improves your sustainability and your and reduces your carbon footprint. If the closer you are to delivery, the better off you are. So that's good. And of course, um, supporting the U.S. economy and so that we get back to something that's more robust is also very good. Um, so that's you know that's a really hot topic for me is sustainability in conjunction with reshoring. So that's really important. Uh, and then I think, you know, an, another topic is um, this whole idea of leaving China. Um, you know, as I said, I helped lots of companies go to China because that was the strategy in the early 2000s. That's what executives wanted to do. And and now I think, you know, I, I honestly think that executives got a lot smarter and, and now are considering much more about the global environment than they ever have before. And so leaving China is the other thing that I would um, say is really important and understanding how to do it and when to do it and what the benefits are of bringing some of that manufacturing back home. Well, Rosemary, I think we have
1: a lot to cover here in the upcoming weeks with Rethink Reshoring. Plenty of content that we will dig into, and our show will uh, will air Tuesday afternoons at 2.30 Eastern Time right here on FreightWaves TV. In the meantime, if people want to get in contact with you specifically at the Reshoring Institute, maybe they now have a little bit of a, a, re- a reshoring bug that they want to learn a little bit more about. Where can they go to do that?
2: Yeah, so um, you can contact us at info at reshoringinstitute.org. We are a nonprofit organization. We're a 501c3 nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. Um, And the best way to reach out is just uh, that email. It's info at reassuringinstitute.org. And we'll respond to you as quickly as possible. Awesome. We will be back next week for another episode of
1: Rethink Reshoring. I'm Kaylee Nix. You can catch me every single morning here on FreightWaves TV. Thank you guys so much for staying tuned. We're excited to launch into this new journey. And we'll catch you guys next week.